So when I look at the Mosaic Law, and like you're gonna tell me just like, well, it says right here in the ceremonial cleanliness laws. I'm just like, it also says that you shouldn't have shrimp. It also says that a woman is on her period that you can't touch her for seven days. So if you want to get biblical with me about Mosaic Law, let's really go in. Welcome to the Dismantle, creating community, not converts. Hello and welcome to The Dismantle, a show for community, not converts. I'm your host, Joey. Each week we attempt to dismantle or take apart an issue that poses as problematic for the church by having a discussion with a guest who has insight or experience with that subject. Now, if you're new to the show, we won't always agree, but we won't argue because our goal is to gain understanding and perspective by sharing views in a way that builds bridges, but not barriers. Our guest today is Kevin Garcia. Kevin is a writer, a podcast host, and a YouTuber hailing from Atlanta, Georgia. He's an advocate, a musician, an entrepreneur, and a content creator. Kevin, welcome to The Dismantle. What up, what up, what up? Kevin, thank you so much for being on the show. Before we dive into our topic today, how did you get introduced to church and to faith? What's some of your religious background? I was born in the South, and so being born in the South means that you... Even if you weren't evangelical yourself, you were exposed to evangelicalism. So uh, we were that family that was in church three or four times a week, you know, twice on Sunday, Bible study, you know, cantata practices on these special weekends. And my mom was the worship leader. My uncle was the pastor. So I've grown up in uh, evangelical non-denominational land is where I was for a long time. And, you know, it was very, I was pretty, I was a very pious kid. Like I was like, I always wanted to do the right thing. I was a goody two shoes. And then, you know, add on top of that, the complication of, you know, being queer. Uh, you know, I, I had a lot of fear surrounding my faith. Um, but uh, it started in the South and like, you know, you know, I was pretty, I pretty much, you know, in some ways still am Baptist, hmm. um, depending on which school of Baptist thought you're talking about. But, um, yeah, that's how I got started in the church was just like I grew up in it. I inherited it, this language of faith. And um, for now, I'm still in it. <laughs> it kind of feels like a for better or for worse kind of scenario sometimes. Hmm. That's awesome. And thanks for sharing that, Kevin. So we're going to step on some toes, some egos, and maybe some beliefs today. Uh, but this has been a topic I've been dying to cover with someone, and I'm so honored that you trust not only me, but also our listeners with hearing your story. So Kevin, like you had just said, you identify as a queer Christian. I do. Now, many today in the evangelical circle would say that those are two diametrically opposed characteristics. How have you managed that tension and how would you define those two? Well, I would define queer as, um, well, there's a few ways to define queerness. Um, one, it can be one's sexual orientation, which is, you know, who, um, you know, who you're attracted to. Um, and uh, queer has this lovely ambiguity to it. So for someone like myself who kind of, um, I also identify as uh, gender fluid or gender queer or non-binary, whatever language you want to use with that. So as someone who is attracted to genders like my own and also not like my own, and then also because my gender kind of floats around in the cosmos that is gender, I like the word queer because it is as expansive as God is, in my opinion. So I, I honestly, because queerness as a school of thought as well, is the idea that every binary should be broken down. You know, like everything that we think is a barrier isn't real because 
if the universe is, is as expansive as we believe it is, and that means by proxy God is as expansive as we think God is, then I believe queerness to be not just a reflection of sexuality or gender, but I think it's a way of life. I think it's a way of looking at God, humanity, um, possibility. Um, so queerness overall, because um, you can be like an openly gay person and not have that mindset. You can still be like a white cis gay dude. So queerness, I think, is, a, for lack of a better term, a lifestyle choice in some ways to, to intentionally live in a way that would seek to break down everything that, seats, that stops human flourishing. And that, to me, is also what it means to be Christian, is to live in such a way that I want to help inspire or help cultivate human flourishing in any way possible by alleviating um, you know, stress on the poor and on people of color, um, by alleviating stress on any community that is under the oppression of white supremacy, because it's all connected. So for me, I think queerness and Christianity, honestly, are quite intertwined. And for me, I think they're uh, inextricably tied, at least for my personal practices. Now, you mentioned in your intro that you grew up in the South. Uh, did you ever have an experience with, and I say this in air quotes, praying away the gay? Yeah, so when I first realized that I was attracted to other boys, I was a freshman in high school. I was kind of a late bloomer for some reason. And it was so it was actually honestly pretty terrifying because people called me a fag from like eight from like sixth grade onward. And I wasn't attracted to anyone in middle school. Again, I was like late bloomer. I just didn't realize I was so flamboyant. And you know, in hindsight looking back, I'm like, oh God, yeah. Yeah, I was definitely definitely gay from a very young age but nobody would talk about it because to everyone else i was just oh that's kevin he's just sensitive and very in touch with the holy ghost you know that's why he's crying all the time in worship but yeah so uh when i came out the first time it was sophomore year of high school my father just asked me point blank if i was gay and then outed me to my mother and then my mother left to the store. She got the first book she could find on the Christian bookstore shelf, which led us to Exodus International, which at the time was the largest ex-gay ministry in the world, promising hope for change, but really resulting in the suicide of countless people because they could not change their orientation. They couldn't change their gender identity and their desire for like what God wanted to express through them. And so I know dead people because of that. I know people who have killed themselves because they couldn't change. And the stories, I mean, I'm a, I'm a suicide survivor off of two attempts. Um, most of my friends are suicide attempt survivors. Like, it's one of those things where uh, praying the gay away, like, it's not just a matter of disagreement or a difference in theology. Like, you telling somebody, or not you, but just like the proverbial you, the church at large, telling queer folks that who they are and who they're created to be something as something as integral to our personality as our sexuality and gender, we're telling people that what God created is bad. That who you, it's not, it's that in the minds of so many people, sexuality is about action, like who I want to have sex with, and not about how I connect with another human, how I relate to my family, how I uh, form friendship bonds, and even how I connect with the divine. Um, like our sexuality is Inter is tied into all of that because all sexuality is is the desire to connect with other people, you know. That's so like you know I would say 
that you know just because we're not you know there's we're not two people naked in a room doesn't mean that there's not some sort of sexual component to it there's not some sort of desire for authentic connection that's really what sexuality is all about and that's a big misconception but to answer the original question yes i did, i went through 12 years of trying to pray the gay away and it was hard as one word for it that's that little suit but i can go i could write i could tell you stories on stories about that shit Was uh, was boy erased similar to your experience? Mm, different. So, what's interesting too is that a lot of people think that um, boy erased is is reparative therapy. TM. That's the only way it's done. Yes, there are places still today where people send their gay children to be converted in this way, and it's barbaric and it's horrible and it's awful and it needs to be stopped. And reparative therapy is just going by other names now. Within organizations like Bethel, Hillsong, um, independent non-denominational churches, Southern Baptist churches across the country, there are still ex-gay ministries who are kind of still holding on from where Exodus left off. Um, and so a lot of times it's not, we're going to lock you in a camp and make you do things you don't want to do. Um, a lot of times it's not a residential thing. It's like weekly men's groups where people will come and hear about how terrible their sexuality is, confess when they masturbated last time or when they watched porn. Um, and then we're going to lump all the guys who struggle with porn addiction and the men who cheated on their wives and uh, the homosexuals. We're going to throw them all in one room because it's all the same thing, and it's not. So for a lot of times, people will frame it as, I just want God, what God's best for you is. I believe that God is a God of miracles and can do anything. Um, or... You know, just I just want to do what the Bible says. And like, you know, this pastor says that, you know, celibacy is the way to go. And, you know, like it's it's uh, it's not just a place you go. It's not like uh, reparative therapy is a whole mindset. You learn not to trust your body. You learn that your desires are terrible and you give yourself over to an inordinate amount of accountability about your own personal life. Like I know many of my friends who oftentimes had to meet with their professors or with their advisors or their pastors to get counseling about remaining celibate, even though they weren't even in a relationship with anybody, straight or gay. Like nobody else has that level of like scrutiny on them besides queer people in church scenarios. It's wild to me. And the same, it was the same thing for me. I had so many like accountability partners, like it was ridiculous. And I didn't know anybody else and I wasn't doing anything. That's what was so wild about it. Now, before we continue, I realize that some of our listeners may not even know what LGBTQ stands for. Oh. So can you explain each of those letters and what they mean? I'll give you my best approximation because like for anybody, like de definitions can vary depending on the person who's using it. Sure. So we'll use the basic LGBTQIA, which is like the standard American acronym. You might also see in certain places LGBTQIA 2S or a couple other things, but here's the basics of it. The L, we got your good old-fashioned lesbian, uh, which is a woman who is attracted to another woman. A political lesbian is also a totally different uh, type of thing. It's like a, an actual politic that emerged during um, first and second wave feminism, but you guys can go Google that, but basically uh, a lesbian is someone who is a, a woman who's attracted to other women, typically. 
Um, you got your G, which is gay, which is a person who is attracted to genders like their own, nearly exclusively or monosexually. Mostly like gay guys or gay men is mostly the, a title that they prefer use, just depends on the person. Uh, but women can also refer to themselves as gay. But, uh, you know, a cis male may not refer to himself as a lesbian because he's not a woman. Makes sense. Confusing. Double standard. Maybe. Who can say? Anyways, B, we got your your bisexual humans. Bisexuality is defined as being attracted to genders like one's own and not like one's own. Not necessarily in the same way. Not necessarily all the time and not necessarily always to the same intensity. So the way some of my bisexual friends put it are like, you know, like I'm mostly attracted to women or like a woman saying I'm mostly attracted to women. However, I've dated men and I've loved them and I know that I have the capacity to be attracted to men. And so that is, you know, it doesn't matter if like you're, uh, you know, two people of the same gender in a relationship doesn't make you less bisexual, you know? So it doesn't matter if like, you know, you're a person who's in a heterosexual passing marriage. If you're attracted to somebody else of the same gender or a gender other than the opposite gender of yours, you know, chances are that you might file into like the bi plus umbrella. So there's that. And people might also ask, like, what's the difference between bisexuality and pansexuality? Pansexual folks would say that they are attracted to people regardless of gender, regardless of presentation. It's very similar and it's nuanced. And I honestly don't know. Go ask a pansexual person. <laughs> then uh, we have T, which stands for transgender. Transgender simply is a, is a word meaning uh, that a person does not identify with the sex that was assigned, or to, to the gender that was assigned to them at birth. So, for example, um, you can be someone who's born with a male body, and then later in life you realize that, you know, based off of how you're developing, that you actually are a woman. And so, uh, either through hormone replacement therapy, medical intervention, there are different ways that different trans people um, choose to choose to transition. And then within the trans umbrella, there's so many different other expressions. Like some, like myself, I, I call my identify as non-binary or gender fluid, which means that my presentation varies widely. So like there's some days I'll have like a full face of makeup on and other days like today where I'm wearing like Wrangler jeans, a tank top, and my face is totally unshaved and gross. Like I kind of look like a bum and I'm really glad you can't see me right now. So, so transness um, is a whole conversation within itself. Um, but the basics are you don't identify with the gender assigned to you at birth. And conversely, the word cisgender, which isn't a part of it, is basically just means that you do identify with the gender assigned at birth. So most straight people would say it would be cisgender male or female. Q stands for the word queer, which uh, is as much a political term as it is an identity. Um, it was actually adopted in the early 90s because for so long it was a slur for people like in the early like 1950s, 80s, like, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s and 90s. But the queer liberation movement chose it uh, because basically this was a word that was meant to hurt people. But they said, like, you know what, I do want you. I am queer. Like, I am who you say that I am. I do love who you say I love. Like, I want you to see me as queer. And so it became a, a really powerful word of reclamation for many. And for many folks, again, who like float in the ambiguous spaces like I do, queer really is a way for me to just uh, say that I'm not heteronormative. So that's also how I define queerness is anything that's not heteronormative. 
um, either in attraction, gender presentation, whatever. But it's also to note that just like just because I'm okay with using the word queer doesn't mean that older LGBTQ people are okay with hearing that word. So just be sensitive to who you're talking to. I stands for the word intersex, which means somebody who is born um, with either genetics or uh, a physical body, which is does not fall neatly into the category of male or female. Typically, this means that you can have kind of androgynous genitals. Um, you could be someone who's born with a penis and breasts. You could be somebody who's born with a female body but have male chromosomes. There's a bazillion different ways that intersex, the intersexness of somebody can present itself. And what's interesting, too, is that intersex folks are as common as redheads. So chances are somebody, you know somebody in your life who in some ways is probably intersex. Like, that's how common intersex people are. And what's interesting to note is that a lot of times if a baby is born with either, uh, like, with, again, ambiguous genitals, it's like it could be a penis, but it could also be a clitoris. A lot of doctors early on made choices for families saying that there was, like, a surgery that had to happen in order for the child to live. And it turns out that that wasn't the case at all. All these surgeries are cosmetic. So it's really important to basically protect intersex babies and stop giving involuntary gender assignment surgeries um, to the most vulnerable among us. So that's, that's that. And also it's something really interesting to note that this is a naturally occurring phenomenon. Uh, intersex folks are just, they are born that way, in the womb, knit together in the womb, one might say. And so when... The Bible, everyone's like, oh, well, God created them male and female. I'm just like, well, what about the reality of intersex people? Like, what's, what's going on with that? Does that, like, that that right there, to me, is, like, um, the most beautiful example of just how God is kind of winking at us, saying, I created male and female, and dot, dot, dot. Ooh, is creation expanding? You tell me. That's what I say. Um, so, LGBTQIA, asexuality is basically anyone who does not experience, experience sexual attraction in a, you know, a, in a way that one might say is typical. They typically uh, would say that they don't experience sexual attractions towards any gender or gender presentation, although sometimes they might. Um, so that was, someone would call them gray sexual, where like they're mostly not sexual, but sometimes they are. Or people can say that they're, you know, hetero or homoromantic or biromantic, say, meaning like, you know, I don't want to have sex with a person, but I do desire for deep romantic connections with people, which can still be have, you know, be had outside of sex. And to be honest, asexual theology is, in my opinion, some of the most fascinating commentary on how we structure relationships and how we structure churches as well. Like, are we building space for people who are single, regardless of why they're single? Um, what does it mean to, to really include people in a, in a radical way? So that is asexuality. And there's also um, numerous indigenous words that people use um, in the Native Americas and the First Nations people. Oh, there's a lot of folks in the two-spirit community. And uh, that is an indigenous way of describing their own version of queerness. Um, it's usually someone who's in between genders. And, you know, if you look at the uh, Native Hawaiian culture, they have a word for that, which is also called mahu, which means middle. There are countless different groups in India and Southeast Asia of uh, what we would call in the West trans women, but they're a totally different gender and class of person who are included in society. So it's really, really interesting how, like, how, how we think about gender and sexuality is in the way that we talk about it here in the U.S. is really shaped by Western constructs. And so I think it's really important when we talk about, you know, the acronyms that are LGBTQIA2S, 
we're also going and saying, you know, how much of this is a Western construct? How do other cultures around the world view this? Um, and like, what's the history of queerness within indigenous histories as well? So that's, that's that. That's the that about that. Now, as someone with feet in both camps, the the gay camp and the Christian camp, talk to me, you had just mentioned the idea of theology. Talk to me about something that I know nothing about, queer theology. Given that this is going to be a condensed version because we don't have like an hour to get for me to give my lecture, the basics are this, is that I believe, and I would say numerous scholars and folks within these circles would agree that by and large, when we look at the direction of the Bible, like um, one would, uh, who wrote Slaves, Women, and Homosexuals? I can't remember who wrote that book, but he proposed this new idea, this idea of uh, a hermeneutic in which you would look at the direction of it, direction of like an issue where the Bible was pointing. So for example, in the case of slavery, the Bible is pointing towards liberation and abolition of slavery, right? You know, it says like, you know, slaves be, uh, you know, you know, be uh, unto your master as, as, as unto the Lord. But then at the same time, it also says that there's no slave nor free in Christ Jesus. And we see like just basically how Jesus treated people that like that, that God's heart has always been towards inclusion, affirmation, abolition, freedom for black people and freedom for people who are enslaved. Women, same thing. Uh, again, it's going to depend on your own personal context, but I come from a context where I believe that women not only should be empowered to lead the church, but are an integral part of that. And so you look again at the text, it says, like, women, be submissive unto your husbands. So the, the husband is the head of the household, as Christ is the head of the church. But then at the same time, the Bible also says there's neither fail nor female in Christ Jesus. So what does that mean? And also, what does it mean to examine the Bible through a womanist lens and a feminist lens, where there were women included in Jesus' early ministry, but weren't talked about and weren't published because they were women, not because they weren't, like, enormously important parts of the early ministry of Jesus, so I would say, and people, I think many scholars would say, that <clears throat> the Bible points towards the empowerment and equity of women and men. Now, when it comes down to this, the situation of talking about same-sex relationships and queer identity, this is where it gets tricky because I can't look at you and say that the Bible has a space where it says homosexuality is okay or that same-sex relationships are okay. What I can do is point out context of what was written in the Bible and then our current understanding of what is based off of those information. Because I believe that when you get new information, it should change your mind. If you get, it's like the scientific method. You know, the reason we believe that the earth is round is because we had new information. But before we had new information, when someone said the world was round, they called him a heretic and excommunicated him. And then it's like, oh shit, he's right. The earth is round. Um, but the Bible says, you know, that, you know, the sun hurries around from one end to the earth and hurries back to whence it came. That means that the sun is moving, not the earth, but we know that's not true. So new information leads to new understanding. That's what I really want people to get at. So if we look at the context in which the Bible was written and the context, uh, we'll start Old Testament first. Mosaic law and, Deut and deuterocanonical law, right? All of these prohibitions against it 
are not things that Christians have ever had to uphold, right? Because we're under the new covenant and also uh, with the inclusion of Gentiles, like we, we don't even have to be circumcised to be a part of the family of God, right? So when I look at the Mosaic law and like, you're going to tell me just like, well, it says right here in the ceremonial cleanliness laws. I'm just like, it also says that you shouldn't have shrimp. It also says you shouldn't like plant two crops next to each other. It also says that if your daughter can't prove her virginity on her wedding night, she should be stoned. It also says that a woman is on her period that you can't touch her for seven days. So if you want to get biblical with me about Mosaic law, let's really go in. You know, go ahead and stone me, but also stone all of these women who are in public with their periods. You know, I just really want to be a biblical Christian. So that's the short, short version. And we can get into like what was actually going on and how sex was used in the ancient world. But honestly, proof texting is very annoying to me. And I think it misses the point by and large. New Testament, we've got the instances where, you know, Jesus is talking about divorce. And I'm like, okay, well, like divorce, again, has nothing to do with uh, same-sex relationships. You know, like Jesus is basically saying you can't just break your covenant with your partner. And I think that, like, for the time, like, Jesus didn't have a concept for same-sex marriages because in the minds of ancient people, sexuality was not a thing. It was just that, like, you had bodily urges. It wasn't so much that we understood the psychology of sexuality and gender and how it all shakes out with the brain environment. So um, for many people in the ancient world, especially in the Greeks, they would say that a man who is attracted to other men or has sex with other men, they would say he has too much passion and that if he's bored with chasing after women, he's going to chase after the harder sex to acquire. That's what they thought about sexuality. They just thought it was like this thing about like, you're just a really horny motherfucker. And you're just do, going off and doing whatever you want because you're bored. Which we know is not the case. So when we look at things in the, uh, so that's one, one part of it. Is sexuality as we think of it today was not the same way we thought about sexuality. People of the ancient world, writers of the Bible were thinking about sexuality. And so let's talk about like, you know, the verses where it says, you know, they gave them, like Romans 1, they gave themselves over to, I think that's in Romans 1, right? Something like that. But the ones where it talks about, like, you know, they gave themselves over to unnatural things. That word unnatural is the same word that's used, I believe, in Galatians to describe men who have long hair as unnatural. Um, not to mention in the vice list that mentioned the word homosexuality, um, that's actually two words that mean totally different thing. But during the translation um, that happened between the KJ, the, the, the King James Version, and a version that was produced in the South, I believe it was the New Living Translation. They miscopied, they, miss, they didn't do any work around that. They didn't understand like the actual context to it. And then the only other time it's mentioned in New Testament is from a word that it was, it was a compound word that Paul probably made up. So like, if you want to like get the in-depth information about all this stuff, you can go over to my YouTube channel, or you can pick up God and the Gay Christian by Matthew Vines, or... There's another really great resource from Reformation Project called How to Talk About the Bible and LGBTQ Inclusion. It's 85 pages long. It really lays out the entire kind of like biblical case for inclusion, and it addresses all of these clobber passages and kind of gives from like an evangelical perspective, like how we understand this logically, because I do believe that this can be a logical thing. Now, all that being said, the way to sum that all up is I believe that what is talked about in the Bible in regards to same-sex interactions has more to do with the exploitation of folks. It has to do with lust that is causing people to treat other people like objects and rather than humans. And it has to do with power being um, exacted over another human rather than what we have today, which is loving relationships that are based in equity, trust, respect, and a desire to see another person flourish.
which again is not what you're going to find in the ancient world. You're going to find people who are dominating each other because that's what the world was. So it's, it's a totally different understanding. The way we understand sexuality today is so different than how people saw sexuality in the new and old Testament or even before, like when they, they were, you know, putting the Bible together during the council of Trent. Like we know more about now about like what, what sexuality and gender is. So why wouldn't we want to include that with our um, analysis and exegesis of the Bible? So that, that's like the one thing, but generally like how I've reconciled being queer and Christian is just that like, the, I, I, I love, I tend to look at the fruit, right? You know, and that's just something that Matthew Vines makes a point in his book. And I just think it just makes sense to me. Right. And I think it makes sense for everyone is to look at the fruit of something. What is the thing that it's producing in people's lives? Right. If it's producing bad fruit, you know, if a, a non-affirming theology is causing people to kill themselves, is causing parents to throw their children out of their house, is causing trans folks to uh, take, try to take their life more often than not, is causing um, trans women of color to be killed in the street for just merely presenting feminine. If the fruit is death, then that should be enough for us to come to this conversation with the question of, did we get this wrong? Is there a different way to look at this? Because there are dead people, there's dead bodies. And it's because it's directly tied to what the church is saying. And if we do not repent of that, we will continue to have blood on our hands. That's the thing is that there's so many stories just like that, where, where people, because we want so badly to stay a part of our communities that we're willing to do anything. And like, cause like, think about it, like, you know, within the church, like we kind of become insular communities. We kind of become our everything, right? So for so many of us, like our church community is the most important and formative community for us. And so we'll do anything, including suppress who we are and suppress our, the truth of our desire and suppress the way we want to be expressing ourselves and moving through the world so that we can maintain that connection. And what it does is it causes this really horrible cognitive dissonance of like, I love my community. And I also have, I have not only have I, uh, I think I, at least this is what I did. I equated my community with God. Like, if I lose this community, I'm also going to lose God because that's a lot of the ways like we, we kind of tie them all together. My church, my church family is a source of authority in my life. And so I'm going to submit to that authority until, you know, eventually I can't. And then when I don't submit to that authority, because I choose to believe something differently, all of a sudden I, all of my work, all of who I am, my value gets depleted. And oftentimes queer people find themselves in the outside of communities that they have invested lifetimes in. And it's truly, truly heartbreaking. And that is why so many queer folks struggle with depression and mental and anxiety and, you know, complex PTSD because of religious trauma. And so like, it's really, really important to ask ourselves, just like, you know, when, when someone comes out in our community, even if we don't understand, the last thing we should do is tell them that they can't be who they are because that is going to send them in like the mental anguish that that causes. It's a, uh, it's catastrophic to be frank. Now, like you had just sort of alluded to, I feel like the church does focus heavily on that spiritual side of the conversation, but it does forget mm -hmm. the emotional side, the high suicide rates, the mental health, the depression mm -hmm. issues, mm -hmm. you know, a myriad of other things. Why do you think that the church sidesteps all of those? Because it's convenient. Um, and I think the, the church also has a problem with we, okay. Cause the church has like the, the church has a problem with being wrong. 
the church is so scared of having to admit that we have sinned, right? And that's the, that's the thing about this is, is that this is, in my opinion, it's living in sin. If you are doing anything that is causing somebody to not flourish, that is sin. If you are saying to somebody that your life uh, has to look a certain way in order to be acceptable to God, that is sin. That is causing someone to not be able to flourish. Um, and so I think the church is just so scared of being wrong. And rather than being scared of being wrong and saying, you know what, let's try and figure out like how to progress through this, figure out how to uh, do something different, what the, one of two things happens. Uh, either churches double down on their own fundamentalism and, you know, you, you, you'll get what the GOP and, you know, the Southern Baptist Convention is now, which is just a group of people who only can hear voices from inside the camp because everyone else is a fucking heretic, right? And I think they, they sidestep it because um, it's too painful to, to own. You know, I think just in general, the church needs to repent of much more than just violence against the queer community. The church, I mean, if you look at the 2,000-year history of the church, it's not a great track record. We, san we sanctioned the slave trade. We um, allowed for colonialism to happen. We tried to take over the Middle East with, you know, the crusade, once with adults and then another time with children, because that makes sense. You know, the, the, it, the church has more than just queer blood on its hands. It has the, the blood of generations on it. And I say the church and the church universal, because if I claim the same name of Jesus, that means that it's also part of my heritage, which means I also need to repent of that. Repent of my own racism, repent of my own misogyny, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And people, so people size up the emotional thing because we have been taught a few things. A, we've been taught that spirit is all that matters, which is do doicism, which was proclaimed as heresy during one of the first councils of the church. You know, this was uh, a this was like a, an idea, like this division between body and spirit is something that is, and I believe, like one of the devil's biggest lies that the church has believed, um, is that spirit is all that matters. It doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter what your body is telling you. It doesn't matter like what your desire is. is. Your body, above all things, is this, you know, sinful, sinful thing rather than going, because like, you know, so many people started Genesis 2, you know, with what Augustine called the fall, which isn't even a Jewish concept, I might add. But rather, we need to go back to Genesis 1. What does God say about humanity? God says humanity is very good. And so that's where I believe that we have to begin again from. Our, our initial word is very good, is beloved, is being a part of this, this family of God. Not brokenness, not trying to fix ourselves, not trying to be good enough. Like starting from the get-go to be good. And so many of us don't believe we're good. And if we don't believe we're good, we're afraid to be punished. And that's what so many people are still like working with. This this picture of God who's angry and up in the sky, and if you, you fuck it up, I'm gonna I'm gonna smite you. And that's not who God is. Going back to the original question, because I love going on all these different trails, I think the reason that the, the church sidesteps it is because like they, they see it as a byproduct of sin. Um, of like, oh well, obviously they killed themselves because they're living in sin, they're not living in what God's uh, best for them is. Truth is, people who are committing suicide uh, have been trying to live in what, what God's best is for them. It's people like me who went through for 12 years and 
on the other side of it, when I tried to date women and broke people's hearts and I, you know, you know, hid uh, my secret little like rendezvous because I just had this like secret desire to connect with somebody who could fully see me. Like I, li- I lied and I lived double lives and I learned how to not trust myself. And that to me, like, it's all, it was all wrapped up in this belief that like, this is how it means to be a Christian. And the truth is like, I was trying to do those things. And um, they don't, they don't want to believe like the church and Christians don't want to believe that they're complicit in the death of somebody else because we're the righteous ones. We've got it together. We understand everything. This is how it is to be a Christian. And so it just, it's, it's this blind ignorance and elitism. It's, it's honestly, it's, it's white supremacy. It's all wrapped up together. Big old clusterfuck. <laughs> Now, in my opinion, we can love Democrats if we're Republican. We can accept Calvinists if we're Arminian. But when it comes to homosexuals, that's where we draw the line. Mm. Why do you think that this topic is so divisive for Christians, people who profess following Jesus? I think it's divisive because um, uh, the mind, the ego needs an enemy, right? And so if we look at the history of how the Republican Party was formed and like how the Southern Baptist Convention is formed now, it all started not because of abortion and not because of the homosexual agenda, quote unquote, homosexual agenda. Um, The Republican Party was originally galvanized around desegregation. Like they wanted, like they did not want black kids in their schools. And so Southern evangelical Christians got in bed with the Republican Party to try and fight segregation or desegregation from happening stop black people from coming to their schools which is why in many metropolitan areas inner cities are now like um really really poor areas of the city because of white flights because of establishing you know all of these christian academies and christian colleges because the evangelicals didn't want black people to be allowed the same rights and privileges now fast forward um, and the Republican Party uh, realizes, oh, shit, it's not OK to be racist, apparently, anymore. So we have to switch up the game. And so they got people on board with abortion, saying, you know, right to life and uh, giving a bunch of uh, really horrible information about what abortion actually is and how abortion actually functions. Not to mention, they also didn't prepare people with, you know, that also came with the sexual education that is abstinence only saving sex for marriage. And also heterosexual marriage is the only marriage you are going to learn about in school, you know, thus perpetuating an even larger problem. Because when people, people are going to have sex regardless. And if you don't provide comprehensive sexual education for people, your abortion rate is going to go up because your unwanted teen pregnancy is going to go up. And so, oh, but you're going to try and restrict abortion in your state. So that means that you have a whole bunch of babies being born to mothers who can't take care of them. The cycle repeats itself. Do you see where I'm going with this? And so... Republicans and Christians, again, like, and I hate throwing them all together, but it's mostly just like conservative Christianity has a problem with anything that's not like them. And they have been convinced, like, you know, conservative Christian, like closed minded folks have been convinced that there is only one way to be a Christian, that they have the most perfect interpretation of the scripture. um, And that, you know, God gave us the Bible in English and it was given to us by George W. Bush. So it's, it's just a lot of like, I feel like there's a fear of being wrong. There's a fear of other, there's, there's a scarcity mindset. And I also think it's a lack of spiritual conviction. It's like, 
if you really believe that God loved everybody, like, I think you would be treating people differently. I like, it's, a. Uh, it's, it's divisive because it threatens the hierarchy. It threatens how we've done church for 2000 years. It threatens, you know, the norm and people want anything that threatens the norm. People are going to get buck with people are going to want to fight against it, but that's, that's what God has always been doing, though. God's always been drawing the tent wider. Like, you look back at, um, there's this, this picture in the Old Testament. Um, King David gets the, the Ark of the Covenant, puts it under a tent, throw, throws it open so that all people can see it, even though that was against the, like, the holy law. So why, again, weird things, like, you know, how is it that King David can do something that's against the law, but just, like, uh, you know, one person who accidentally touches the cart dies from touching it weird old testament god stuff that's another podcast for another time but the prophetic picture of king david opening up the ark of the covenant to be seen by all the people i believe is also what jesus did on the cross is what jesus did when the the the, uh what is it the blanket of uh the blanket of uncleanliness came down and he said, don't call unclean what I call clean. I think it's what happened when the Gentiles got the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is showing up in people. The Holy Spirit says no business showing up in, you know what I'm saying? In Gentiles, in Jews, in eunuchs, in black people, in uh, queer folks. Like the thing is the Spirit of God is already in us and working in our community. Whether or not you want to affirm that is, is not the question. Whether, what, what is the question is whether or not you're going to affirm what God is already doing in the queer community, how God is already empowering us. And are you going to stand alongside us as we fight for justice, or are you going to be on the wrong side of history? Whew, sorry, sometimes I get fired up. <laughs> if you weren't fired up, I think that would be another problem. <laughs> Probably. But Kevin, as we wrap up our time, what's something that you think the church can and maybe should do to move in a more positive direction on this whole issue of LGBTQ and the church? I mean, so here's the thing is that I always say that I don't care what people believe. I care that they understand why they believe what they do and how, how that, how that impacts the rest of the world. And so, um, if you are someone who doesn't have queer friends, Go make some queer friends. Like if you have, if there's a gay coworker at work, like go become friends with them, have lunch with them. Don't like, it's like, think of it like any other relationship you're building. Like you're not, the first thing is like, you're not trying to convert them. You're not trying to like make them see your point of view. Like just become friends with people, become friends with people who are different than you. Because I guarantee you, is it like you're, you're going to go into this conversation thinking, oh, I'm going to show this person the love of Christ. I guarantee you the exact opposite is true. Queer folks already have God's love in us. And you are going to be shocked at how many times that you're going to run into religious queer people who tell you how much they love God and how God has impacted their life. Go talk to other queer Christians. And I would even say if you're someone who's on the fence about whether you're affirming or not, or you know you're like staunchly not affirming, but you want to love your queer friends or your queer family members, commit to deep relationship with them. Commit to asking about family, showing up for important things in life, not because you want to convert them, but because you believe that God is still in them, that God still loves them. And if God still loves them, you know, love them. Because, like, listen, you can't love God just as an object. God is not this, like, you know, you know, God is not the cross on your wall or Jesus hanging on on the, the crucifix on your Easter table. You know, God is 
only loved through loving other people. God is only loved through your willingness to sit with the least of these. And right now, uh, queer folks, we're on the bottom of the barrel in so many ways, you know, because our intersecting identities often like weigh us down. And so if you are a person who has the privilege, the ability to move in bigger ways, the ability to like change, like you literally, like you have no idea, like, the blessing you're missing out on if you don't know have queer people in your life. It is the biggest blessing. You will see God in a whole new way. So that's what I say. And then on top of that, this is a big call for churches and church leaders. If you are a church and you don't have your LGBTQ policies listed on your website, you are doing, you're sinning. You are sinning against LGBTQ people saying, oh, you're welcome at our church. But as soon as an LGBTQ person tries to participate, we often get sidelined. And so I believe like many people on the internet, the clarity is reasonable. Um, that stating policies clearly and fully saying what I can and cannot do as a queer person or what, you know, women can and cannot do in your ministry. If you're not explicitly clear about that, then you are, uh, you know, you're being lukewarm. And according to Revelation, Jesus doesn't really do good with lukewarm. So like, you know, weigh that out for yourself. Those are great thoughts, Kevin. And thank you so much for being on the show. Where can people connect with you online and uh, follow up with you? Absolutely. You can check me out online at thekevingarcia.com. That's T-H-E, kevingarcia.com. Across the internet at thekevingarcia. And additionally, uh, if you want to check out the newest project that I'm working on with the Innovative Love Coalition, you can go to innovativelovecoalition.com. Our first big project, which launches on Easter Sunday, is a Kickstarter for the first worship album that is going to be written, produced, and performed by queer worship artists. So just saying the revolution's come in handy, so you better show up. It's fantastic. We'll make sure we list all that in the show notes. But again, thanks for being on the show. Hey, I so enjoyed it. Thank you for your time and letting me blather on. It was a joy. And that wraps up this episode of The Dismantle. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the topic we talked about today, maybe your experience and ways that we can continue to create community. Visit the website at dismantlepod.com. And until next time, don't complain about the things you're not willing to change. You've been listening to The Dismantle, creating community, not converts. Visit us at dismantlepod.com.